السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمد عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك على عبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين ما بعد so welcome to another lesson of uh, Quranic progression and uh, alhamdulillah we're still continuing the tafsir of, of Surah Al-Layl and inshallah ta'ala today we're going to begin from verse number 14. In our previous lesson we covered the tafsirs of verses 11, 12 and 13, those three verses of Surah Al-Layl. And Allah Azza wa Jal after mentioning if you look towards the beginning of the surah after Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes a number of oaths that Allah Azza wa Jal begins this surah with Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has essentially given us the jawab al-qasam as we say in Arabic which is the reason for which the oath is taken. You have the oath as we've said and then you have the response to the oath or the reason for which the oath is taken which is called in Arabic the jawab al-qasam. And that is to show that the people that people have different types of paths. People will choose different paths. Inna sa'yakum lashatta Allah azza wa says in this surah. And we spoke a couple of weeks ago about the two paths that Allah Azza wa lays out because ultimately there are only two paths. And so it is the, in one way, one of the easiest types of questions or, or problems, if you like, that a person may encounter in terms of their life. You see, it's not like one of those things where you're given an open-ended question where there could be multiple different answers and it depends on a person's understanding or lack of understanding or their knowledge or lack of knowledge or whatever else it may be. It's not like one of those exam questions where you're told to write a few pages about something. Nor is it a multiple choice question where there's different possible questions and some of them are tricky or not. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, whenever this type of question is placed in the Quran, in the Quranic context, there are only ever two approaches. And so it is very much like a true and false type of question but in this case it is the if you like the right or the left the yes or the no the people who choose the path of Allah Azzawajal and the people who don't as Allah Azzawajal will say or says in the Quran there are only two groups in the end one that will go into paradise and one that will go into the fire and so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala lays out those two paths for us in the Quran and Allah Azzawajal gives us the example of those people who are if you like, on the path of goodness, on the path of righteousness, those people who fear Allah Azza wa Jal, who spend from their wealth and uphold the rights of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and affirm the promise of Allah Azza wa Jal and His reward. And Allah Azza wa Jal says that those people who choose that path, seeking that guidance, Allah Azza wa Jal will help them and He will bestow His favor upon them. And then we mentioned also the people who choose the other path, the second path, and that is the path that leads people away from Allah Azza wa Jal, the path of those people who are stingy and miserly and those people who who withhold and they don't give, and those people who uh, belie the messengers and they reject the promise of Allah Azza wa Jalla and they reject the concept of His reward. And Allah Azza wa Jalla says, and for those people that choose that path, that too will be made smooth for them, meaning that the choice that they make, no one will force them to take any other path than the path that they have already chosen and selected for themselves. And last week then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, or in our last lesson rather, we said that Allah Azza wa Jalla said, وَمَا يُغْنِي such a person will not benefit. We said that there are different positions amongst the scholars of tafsir as to the ma in this verse. Is the ma for nafia? Is it a negation that this person will not benefit from the wealth when they are falling into the depths of the fire? Or is it a ma istifhamiya? Is it a question? And what benefit, of what benefit, will be the wealth that these people amassed when the, as they are falling into the fire? 
and we mentioned both of those positions amongst the scholars of tafsir and also the positions of the scholars of tafsir in terms of the meaning of the word taradda some of those scholars said that taradda means to fall from a height down and that was the position that was chosen by a number of the scholars not least of which Imam al-Tabari alayhi rahmatullah but others such as Imam al-Qurtubi and others chose the position that it means to die and both of them have their position or both of them have their, their uh, reasoning within the Arabic language because the word rada and taradda are very similar and one can mean death and destruction and the other one can mean to fall. We then concluded or we spent a good uh, half of our last lesson speaking about verses 12 and 13 which Allah Azza says that his, the guidance is upon Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and we mentioned the different positions amongst the scholars, the three positions of tafsir concerning the meaning of that and the one that was chosen by Ibn al-Qayyim rahimahullah ta'ala that he favored and others also not just him but others as well favor that it means or that it's referring to even though all of those positions have a correct meaning within the verse but the one that he said was the strongest one and the most appropriate one for this verse is that the one who sincerely seeks at the path of Allah Azzawajal or sincerely seeks guidance he will find Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala upon that path meaning he will be led to the path of Allah Azzawajal and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as we mentioned as we concluded in last week's uh, in, in last in the last lesson وَإِنَّ لَنَا لَلْآخِرَةَ وَالْأُولَى and Allah says, and this world and the next world belong to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. They are his dominion, Jalla fi They are his dominion, subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that's, that's where we uh, finished last uh, lesson. In this lesson now, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala now begins and we have the verses, uh, we're going to continue from verses 14 onwards. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, and again remember that these verses are connected clearly one to another. And so sometimes when we break off the lesson and we have two or three lessons, two or three verses that we took, sometimes it's good to do a recap. And that's why I try sometimes, especially as these surahs get longer, to do a recap so that we can remember, right? And it's something which even if I don't do, it's something which we should be doing actively ourselves as students of knowledge before we come to the lesson, that we're actually looking back as to what Allah said and how the verses have progressed and what is the connection and relationship between those verses so that when we arrive at the next verse, it then it is within that context. As we mentioned before, one of the biggest problems in tafsir is when we isolate verses that are meant to be connected together. Or we take verses in isolation out of context and we study them without understanding how they fit into the larger context of what Allah is discussing. These are verses similar. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has told us right, about those people who will not benefit and how those people and how people should seek the guidance from Allah and how Allah controls and owns this life and the next life. In verse number 14, now Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will go back to speaking about those two groups of people. Allah will speak about those two groups of people, but especially in terms of the end result, which is punishment and reward. Because essentially, as we've said before, when Allah and this is a very common uh, theme and, and principle throughout the Quran, when Allah speaks about the two choices, the two paths, the path of righteousness and the path of disbelief, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala very often in the Quran will also mention the end result. So it's not just good enough saying that this is the path that you can take, that's the path of righteousness, that's the path of disbelief, and go ahead, whatever it is, it's up to you, no problem. No, there is also a ramification and a consequence to that choice. And that is what Allah Azzawajal wants to also emphasize. Because those people when, and all of us as we stand before Allah Azzawajal on that day of judgment, that is essentially what will determine whether we are people of success and salvation, or whether we are people of failure and damnation. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will look 
our path you have chosen, knowing full well that the path that you have chosen leads you to an end result, either one of goodness or one of evil. And so Allah will now conclude the rest of the surah, the remaining few verses of the surah, essentially conclude on this note, warning people against the fire, knowing that if you take the path, of miserliness and turning away from Allah and disbelieving in his message and his promise and so on, then there is an end result and that is the fire. As opposed to the one who will be saved from that punishment and those are the people that choose the path of righteousness and belief. So in verse number 14, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ فَأَنذَرْتُكُمْ Allah says, so I warn you about the raging fire. And I just want to check the the translations that we have, that's the translation of, of Professor Abdul Halim, the one that I just gave to you. Uh, but uh, Muhsin Khan, therefore I have warned you of a blazing fire. Mufti Taqi, I have warned you of a blazing fire also. Um, and Sahih International, I have warned you of a fire which is blazing. So Abdul Halim, Professor Abdul Halim chooses the word raging for the description or for the translation of the word taladha. And the others have chosen blazing. And they are very similar in terms of, of meaning clearly. Uh, in terms of the meaning of this verse. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, when He says this to us, I warn you about the raging fire. I warn you about the raging fire. The word taladha in the Arabic language, uh, in some, even in some recitations, actually it's, it's mentioned on some of the tabi'een and others. Uh, and it's mentioned by Ibn Hajar ta'ala in his, in his uh, Fathul Bari. He mentions it in the narration of Sufyan ibn Uyina rahimahullah ta'ala amongst others from amongst the tabi'in and others that they would read this verse with two tabs because the origin of the word taladha is tataladha and the dual uh, letter at the beginning which you often uh, see in, in, in the Arabic language is to show something which is constant and consistent it is a continuous state and that is what the two tabs do at the beginning so when you say taladha and tataladha, the tataladha, the two thas at the beginning, essentially give the notion that this is not just a, a, a fire that has raged or blazed. Because what happens is when you light a fire, as we know, you light a fire and it's extremely intense and the heat is extremely strong and it's at its peak. But what will happen over time is that it will lessen and lessen and lessen. White fires eventually burn themselves out unless you keep fueling them, unless you keep stoking them, unless you keep giving them what they need in, in order for them to burn. Eventually what happens to other fires is they will leave them, right? Look at a barbecue, start a barbecue, a very simple example, you put in the fuel, you put in the coal and so on and you light it up. But what will happen over time unless you keep adding to the coal, new coal, new fuel, new ignition, it will eventually burn itself out. And that's always the case of what happens with fire. The difference between that and the fire of hell is that the fire of hell doesn't have something which is a lesser time, doesn't burn itself out, doesn't become weaker over time, doesn't lessen in its intensity. So when Allah says taladha and its asr is tataladha with the two taz, they were merged in order for it to be easier to recite. And the Arabs often do this, they merge letters and so on. As we know in the Arabic language, that's why we have idgham and so on. They make idgham and they merge letters because it's just easier to say. And the Arabs like what is called khiffatul lisan, which is essentially easy to pronounce. So when you say tataladha, the tata is more difficult to say than the single tataladha, right? But essentially it is mentioned amongst some of the scholars of tafsir 
that this is the origin of the word. And that is why you have in some of the recitations of the mutawatir qiraat, the idgham on this word. So for example, the recitation of al-Bazzi, the riwayah of al-Bazzi, of Ibn Kathir, uh, one of the narrators of Ibn Kathir, and also in the in the recitation of Ruwais, they recite it with a shadda. And the tashdeed is there to show that there is, there is an idgham. That's what the tashdeed does, that there is an idgham and a merging. So they say, فَأَنذَرْتُكُمْ نَارًا And they hold the sound that تَلَضَّى is to show that actually there were two thas at the beginning. So it has this essence in the Arabic language and even in the qira'at that are mutawatira. But none of the Qur'an recite it with two thas anymore. But Al-Bazzi and Ruwais recite it with the Shadda to show that there was actually uh, that there was actually a two double ta there at the beginning. And the word tataladdha is essentially as Al-Alusi, Al-Alusi said in his tafsir and Al-Wahidi and others, they said that essentially it means to rage and to blaze and something which has extremely strong flames, something which continuously burns and rages and blazes. And so that is the meaning of the word tataladdha. And that's why it is said that one of the names of the fire is Lava, right? That's where the, the verse, as Allah says in the verse, Kalla innaha Lava, right? Lava is a description and a name given to the fire, and essentially it refers to its intensity in burning, and that it is never something that never ever gets less and less over time. And subhanAllah, it is amazing in the descriptions, when you look at the descriptions of Jannah on the one hand and the descriptions of the fire on the other hand, you will see that one of the consistencies, because there are a number of consistencies between the two. Obviously, one is in terms of reward and one is in terms of punishment, but there is some consistency in the way that Allah has created these two things. And one of those consistencies, one of those principles that you find in both is that it never lessens, that it is always the greatest in its form. So for example, when it comes to Jannah, it is so amazing and so great that the person who's in Jannah never gets bored, never gets fed up. Right? Allah Azza says towards the end of Surah Al-Kahf, They will remain therein, they will never seek anything other than it. They will never seek to be removed from it or a change from it. Why? Because human nature is that after a while you become bored, you become accustomed, you become fed up. But if something is constantly holding your attention, if something is constantly so interesting that it keeps you wanting to have more and more and more, that shows that it is something which is of peak interest. And normally if it's something in the dunya that keeps you wanting more and more and more, generally speaking, unless it's the ibadah of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and something which is righteous, it can often be harmful, right? So people who constantly want more in terms of uh, substance abuse or alcohol or whatever it is, there is sometimes something there, an attachment, an addiction, which is actually detrimental. But when it comes to wanting more in terms of coming closer to Allah azza wa jalla and ibadah, that is something which is obviously good. In Jannah is given this description that you always want it more, that you never become bored, that Jannah is never something that you want to leave or want to change. And likewise, we see that here now in the fire. The fire is something which in its own form never lessens also. It will continuously rage and rage and rage. There is never a time when the fire becomes less or becomes less heated or becomes less raging or less blazing or less whatever you want to call it in terms of its descriptions. It is always something which burns to its maximum intensity. And so that is the meaning of the word lava, that it is something which continues to burn and burn and burn, and it will continue to do so for the remainder of time. And that's why it's mentioned in a number of a hadith, just so that we can understand its intensity. Those are hadith that we find and they're mentioned in Al-Bukhari and in Sahih Muslim and in other books of hadith, where the Prophet 
describe the punishment of the people who will have the least in terms of the fire. The punishment of the people who will have the least amount of punishment in the fire and how difficult it will be for them. It's mentioned, for example, in the hadith of Nu'man uh, ibn Bashir radiallahu anhum, and the hadith is in Al Bukhari and Muslim, but in the wording of Imam al Bukhari, rahimahullah ta'ala, the Prophet said that the person who will have the least ahwanun nas, they are the least people in terms of punishment on Yom al Qiyamah in the fire, is the one who has like two coals at the bottom of their feet. But because of the intensity of the heat of those two coals, it is something which will burn their brains, fry their brains, and that will continue to happen to them until the end of time, meaning forever, for eternity. In the other wording of this hadith of Nu'man ibn Bashir anhuma, the one that is collected in Sahih Muslim, the Prophet said that the one who will have the least punishment in the fire of hell is the one who is made to wear two shoes of fire, two sandals of fire, because of it, meaning that the fire only reaches what therefore? Only reaches their ankles, right? And some of the wordings of this hadith and other similar hadith actually mention it in that in, in that wording, that for the person who will have the least punishment, they will have the fire reaching up to their ankles. That's all they have in terms of being immersed in the punishment of the fire. But so grave will it be for them that it will cause their brain to fry. And the Prophet said, وسلم, that wording of Sahih Muslim, and that person will think that no one is worse than them in terms of punishment. No one has a worse punishment than them, a worse punishment than them in the fire of hell. No one has anything more serious, more grave in terms of punishment with more intensity than them. And they don't know that they are the least. And that is another similarity between the people of fire and the people of Jannah because these are the people who have the least in terms of punishment. And they don't think there's anyone worse than them. And we mentioned, I think, before, or maybe even in the last lesson, the hadith of the last man who comes out of Jannah and enters into uh, the hour of the fire and he enters into Jannah. And how the Prophet ﷺ described that person as thinking that there is no one better than them in Jannah. Not knowing that they have the least of the reward of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is again that similarity to show to you that even the least form of whether it's reward in Jannah or punishment in the fire is so grave and so serious on the one hand, also amazing in terms of its blessing on the other hand of Jannah, that for each of those individuals, each of those people, it is something which they think that no one can have anything like them, whether it's in terms of goodness or in terms of evil. And that's something that you find within uh, within this. And and that's why you have those hadith, the hadith of Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib radiallahu anhu, the uncle of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, and he asked the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, O Messenger of Allah, your uncle Abu Talib, he defended you with his life and he fought for you and he, and he helped you. So how did you help him? The Prophet said that he was in the depths of the fire and because of my intercession for him, he will be placed on the outskirts, meaning that he will be from amongst the people of the least punishment, meaning from amongst those people that we have mentioned in these types of hadith. And so that shows to you that Allah when he says that I'm warning you of a fire, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in the Quran doesn't necessarily mention these different levels of the fire in terms of this is the least reward. Allah gives a generic description, but even that is enough. Because Allah is saying that I am warning you of the fire. The Prophet is saying to us that fire, the least of it, is like this. The least of it makes you think that you have never, or there is no one that is being punished more than you, has a worse punishment than you. That is the least of it. So beware of that fire, that that is its description. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us this within this particular verse. And clearly therefore we know, and this is one of those verses, that therefore shows also, as Ibn Qayyim mentioned, and the teacher of our teacher, Sheikh Muhammad Al-Amin al-Shanqiti, 
Ali rahmatullah, they said that therefore this verse and the verses that will come show that there are different levels of the fire. As we mentioned, I think also in our last lesson, as Jannah has darajat, levels that rise and, and go higher, then likewise the fire has what is called darakat with a calf, and that is taken from the verse of the Quran because Allah says, That indeed the hypocrites will be in the lowest depths of the fire. Those levels that descend into the depths of the fire, the munafiqeen will have the worst of them, the hypocrites. But it shows to you, therefore, that just as not everyone's reward is the same in Jannah, then likewise everyone's punishment in the fire is not the same. But the point here is also therefore to remember that it is enough for a person just to have the least of that punishment of the fire. That's Even that is too much to bear. Let alone those people who will have more and more and more. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala save us and our families from that. And Imam Al-Qurtubi, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentions a, a beautiful narration in his tafsir, in the tafsir of this verse in his book of tafsir. And he mentions the statement of Imam Malik, rahimahullah ta'ala, that he says that we were praying behind Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, alayhi rahmatullah, the famous Imam and scholar and Khalif of the Muslims, rahimahullah ta'ala, from the descendants of Umar ibn Khattab, radiyallahu an. He says that Umar ibn Abdul Aziz, rahimahullah ta'ala, was leading us in salah, and he was reading from Surah Al-Layl. And he says that when he came to this verse, فَأَنذَرْتُكُمْ نَارًا تَلَظَّى I warn you of this raging fire. He began to cry and he cried so much that he wasn't able to complete the surah. So he stopped and he read a different surah instead. And it shows you that the scholars of Islam, when they would come across these verses, these weren't just verses that they would just give lip service to. Or verses that they would just read without thinking about. Or verses that they would just pass by without really contemplating or pondering over. It was sufficient for one of them just to simply heed that warning. Allah says, beware, I warn you of this punishment. And that would be something which would make their heart tremble and it would increase them in their fear of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we often read these verses and come across them and even study them in terms of their tafsir and their meanings and so on. And it doesn't really cause an impact upon our hearts in the same way. And one of the things that a person has to really try hard to do is as they're coming across the Quran and especially as they're doing tafsir because the best form of contemplation and its greatest type of contemplation of the Quran is when it's based on tafsir. When you've understood the background and you've understood what the scholars have said and you've understood the hadith of the Prophet that speak about what Allah is mentioning and, and highlight it and, and discuss it in further detail, then to contemplate based upon that knowledge on what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying. And so when Allah says, that is a warning to me, it's a warning to you, it's a warning to my family, to your family, it's a warning to each and every single one of us that it is something that we should pay extremely great attention to that Allah is giving this one giving us this warning of the fire of hell in verse number 15 then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about those people who will go into that fire and Allah describes them and he says La illa in which none but the most wicked one will burn in the translation of Muhsin Khan, he says, none shall enter it save the most wretched. And Mufti Taqi, none will enter it but the wretched one. And in Sahih International, none will enter to burn therein except the most wretched one. Except the most wretched one. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this verse, verse number 15, Allah is describing now the people. Allah gave us the warning in the previous verse. 
I warn you of this fire that continuously rages and blazes. Never will it will it will it weaken. Never it will never will it become cooler. Never will it lessen in its intensity and its rage. And Allah Azza wa says, and the people who will enter it will be the most wretched. The people that will enter it will be the most wretched. And Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, and the word of the meaning salah, salaha, right? la yaslaha, the uh, past verb being salah, la yaslaha, meaning none will taste its heat and its fire. None will taste its heat and its burning. That is the meaning of the word salah, meaning none will be cooked by it, none will be burned by it, except those who are the most wretched. And that's why you find in a number of a hadith uh, and a number of narrations from amongst the scholars that Allah Azza wa Jal or the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam telling us that the people who will enter that fire are those people who refused and rejected the message that Allah Azza wa Jal gave to our Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And Imam uh, Al-Hakim, Imam Ahmad in his Musnad, Imam Hakim in his Mustadraq, they mentioned the narration of Abu Umamat Al-Bahili, radiyallahu an, that he was asked, what is the most uh, gentle thing that you heard the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam say? And he said that I heard the Prophet say Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, indeed all of you will enter into Jannah, except the one who flees from Allah the way that the camel flees from its master, from its owner. That's the most gentle thing, meaning that the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam mentioned this because the Prophet is speaking about those people who disbelieve, who reject, who turn away from Allah Azza wa but he mentioned it in the most gentle of forms, meaning that the person who understands will understand. Because the camel has within its nature the nature, to, the need to flee. A wild camel, if it is caught and if it's left and it's not tied up, it will flee from its owner, flee and run. And when it runs, it will run so fast and it will run so hard that it is extremely difficult to catch. So here the Prophet ﷺ is saying, all of you will enter into Jannah, except the one who flees from Allah جل, from his religion in this way, meaning the way that the camel may often run from its master. And Imam al-Bukhari ta'ala, he mentions the narration of Abu Hurairah that the Prophet said Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, all of my ummah will enter into Jannah, kullu ummati yadkhul Jannah illa man aba. Everyone will enter into Jannah for my ummah except those who refuse. And they said, O oh, Messenger of Allah, who would refuse? Who would in their right mind refuse to enter into Jannah? The Prophet said Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam in reply, Man ata'ani dakhad al-Jannah, wa man asani faqad aba. Whosoever obeys me will enter into Jannah, and whosoever disobeys me will enter into the fire. And this is one of those verses that has caused some issues in terms of an aqidah issue. There's an aqidah issue that is extremely important that needs to be mentioned here. Because it is one of those verses that people misunderstood. Because when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, لا يصلاها إلا الأشقى No one will enter into it except the most wicked, the most evil. Some people took from that to mean that therefore the people who don't fit into that description, because Allah says only these people will enter, therefore the people who don't fit that description of being the worst, the most wicked, the most evil, they will be saved from the fire. Right? Whether they are people who you know did any good deeds, didn't do any good deeds, whatever it may be. And this is an issue which is an aqidah issue in, at its essence. And it is called al-rujah. Al-rujah, or the group that is known as the murjiah, are the people who say that action doesn't enter into iman. Iman is just, an, is just the, the statement of the action of the heart. 
and some of them said it is the statement of the tongue but there is nothing to do with actions nothing to do with your actions it is a state of the heart and words of the tongue nothing to do with your physical actions so whether you pray or you don't pray it doesn't make a difference whether you give zakat don't give zakat doesn't make a difference the person who fasts and the person who doesn't fast are equal in in terms of the iman amongst those people who are known as the murjia and these are one of the verses that they used to prove their point but what they have misunderstood and the problem that they have is what we mentioned in the last verse when Allah mentioned in the last verse that there are different levels of the fire so lava is one of those levels of the fire when Allah then says in this verse no one will enter into it what is it? not all of the fire not all of the fire but the part of the fire that is lava no one will enter into that part except the most wicked and that is the meaning of the verse when you understand it. Otherwise, if you take it out of that context, then you have this problem here. But then by doing that, what do you essentially do? You're essentially saying that anyone who's a believer, anyone who in their heart knows, and there are different levels, by the way, of Ilarja, and we'll speak about that in a short while. But essentially what you're saying is anyone who has in their heart that knowledge of Allah, and therefore we call them a Muslim, or we think that they're a believer, none of them will enter into the fire. But that goes against so many of the hadith as we know of the Prophet wasallam that speak about the people of this religion, uh, of the believers, of the Muslims, going into the fire and staying there for uh, an amount of time until Allah decrees that they should be taken out. Those hadith are many. And it is not just one or two or few, but there are many of them. And that is why we have those hadith in which the Prophet wasallam and the believers will come and ask Allah that they should be allowed to intercede on behalf of the people that were Muslims and entered into the fire. And Allah will say to them, whoever you find in their heart, the likes of a dinar, a gold coin of iman, bring them out, then half a coin, then, then a mustard seed and so on and so on. And those different levels show that there are always a lot of people there. And each one by intercession and Allah's permission, they are extracted from the fire. Until you come to those other hadith and the speak, as we mentioned shortly, a short while ago, of the last person to leave the fire and enter into Jannah. So you have this issue, and this issue all comes back down to the issue of irja, and it is an important issue to understand from your aqidah point of view. And that is that the position of Ahlul Sunnah wal Jama'ah when it comes to this issue of Iman is that we believe that Iman is the belief of the heart, the statement of the tongue, and the actions of the limbs. All of that is Iman, and it increases with good deeds and it decreases with bad deeds, evil deeds. That is Iman. And that is why you find a person who, for example, uh, prays, has a stronger Iman if they pray with khushu' and so on, as opposed to a person who doesn't. And you find even within yourself, sometimes the Iman is stronger, that you're closer to Allah, that you feel a stronger connection with Allah Azzawajal, and at other times you don't. And that is you, your fitrah, your heart, telling you yourself that that is what Iman is. And so the problem with the murji and the murji are a group of people that came and they emerged towards the very end of the generation of the companions of towards the very end of their lives and the scholars of the Tabi'een like Qatada and many others they spoke about them Salam ibn Kuhayl and others they spoke about these people Al-Uzai mentions the statements of his teachers from amongst the senior Tabi'een like Qatada and others that they spoke about this and they said that not only is it a bid'ah but it is extremely it is extremely difficult it is an extremely dangerous topic and some of them even said the one who holds this belief will be destroyed because there are different levels of irja. From amongst them is the statement of, of the Jahmiyyah. The Jahmiyyah said it is sufficient for you to know that Allah exists and you become a mu'min. And when you take and extract actions from that type of Iman, you're essentially saying that there's no difference between the likes of Abu Bakr radiallahu an, 
and the likes of someone else who never prayed and never did jihad in it, because both of them both of them know Allah exists in their heart and that is iman to you so the person who reaches the pinnacle of iman for you and the person uh, the, the the person who reaches the pinnacle of iman for you is not the person who does more in terms of their good deeds and jihad and sadaqah and so on because they are the same for you those things don't count and that is the the dangerous aqid of the jahmiyyah that said that it is just simply to know that Allah exists but by that even by that uh, definition then even the mushrikeen of Quraysh would have been Muslims because they all understood that Allah existed. Allah mentions in a number of verses in the Quran, if you were to ask them who created them, they would say it is Allah. Right? You have a number of those verses in the Quran that speak about this. In fact, even Pharaoh, and he was the greatest tyrant of all time and the worst despot that ever lived. Doesn't Musa salam says Allah mentions in the Quran, You know that no one revealed this except the Lord of the heavens and the earth. Musa salam saying to Pharaoh, You know this at the bottom of your heart. And when, uh, when uh, Pharaoh is being drowned, he says, I believe now in the, in the God of Bani Israel. And so he had that knowledge within his heart. If that was sufficient, then it would have been enough for him to enter into Islam. And the Prophet Wasallam's uncle Abu Talib, as we know from a number of the narrations that speak about that time of his death, he knew and he even kind of accepted the logic of what the Prophet was saying. But he wasn't willing to leave the religion of his forefathers. That mere knowledge wasn't enough to save Abu Talib or to save those people who disbelieved in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So that is one form. Right? And then you have those people who say, for example, it is simply the statement of the tongue. If you say La ilaha illallah on your tongue, you're a Muslim, even if your heart doesn't have Iman. Iman is simply to attest on your tongue to the oneness of Allah's worship. But by that definition, then the munafiqeen are Muslims, the hypocrites. Inna al-munafiqeen, Allah says, fi al-asfali min al-nar. They're in the worst depths of the fire, but we've made them into Muslims now by that definition. So this is a problem here, and, and it is something which is extremely important. And I know this is an aqidah lesson. And it's not something which we we regularly go into in terms of its detail and its depth and so on and its study. And nor is it our intention to start doing that now. But there are times and places when we come across things in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala that are aqidah issues. And they need to be understood, even if not spoken to in, about in detail because inshallah there is another time and place for that. But it is something to be aware of, especially as students of tafsir. Because tafsir is one of those things that you have everyone who wrote in it. You have the people of the sunnah that wrote in it, but then you have people who had problems in their belief and in their theology. And so those mistakes sometimes become apparent in books of tafsir or in the way that it's quoted, in the way that it's understood. And so we have this issue in terms of, and this is one of those verses that is often used as, an, as, a, as, a, as a proof for this. It is extremely important to remember, therefore, that what is iman? Iman is your belief in your heart. And it is you attesting that belief upon your tongue. And it is then you showing that through action. Whether a person prays or they fast or whatever they do in terms of good deeds. Now that doesn't mean that those people may, for example, have not have a weakness in terms of their iman. They may not perform certain sins and so on. That is why we say that iman increases and it decreases. But that is the definition of iman. Right? That is the definition of iman. And that is why the Prophet said, وسلم, as mentioned in those hadith, when he said, the Prophet said that the person doesn't, the person who steals, whilst they steal, they are not a mu'min. And the person who commits zina, whilst they're committing zina, they're not a mu'min and so on. And that's to show that iman increases and decreases. Right? It is to do with your actions. 
because otherwise we fall into these mistakes that these groups, the Jahmiyyah, the Karamiyyah, the Asha'iyah, others, they fell into in terms of the issue of, of Iman. And it is an extremely dangerous issue because once you extract actions, and this is where um, unfortunately much of the Muslim Ummah has become quagmired into, into this difficult uh, deception that they're in, that if you extract actions from Iman, then you have that belief that I don't need to pray. Because I've, I've done my part, I've, I've, I have my religion, I've said la ilaha illallah, I don't need to pray, I don't need to fast, I don't need to wear the hijab, I don't need to do A, B, C and D or X, Y and Z because I've already accepted Islam. So you've extracted from it Iman. So therefore what is the point of Allah saying pray if it doesn't make a difference to your Iman? Doesn't make a difference at all to your outcome in the Akhirah? What is the point of Allah saying fast and give zakah? What is the point of Allah saying don't? commit zina, don't drink, don't engage in interest, don't steal, don't murder. Because essentially when you say those actions don't make a difference to your iman, then what's from stopping a person from doing those things, right? And this is the problem that people have when it comes to their actions, right? When it comes to, uh, when it comes to these, uh, these things, right? And, and you have, and obviously always, always there are extremes in this. The murja appeared because they were trying to counter a different extreme, and that is extreme the Khawarij. The Khawarij did the opposite. They said, no, if you do one major deed, uh, one major sin you commit, you're not even a Muslim anymore. So you commit one major sin, you're no longer a Muslim. You're going into the fire for the rest of eternity. That's the belief of the Khawarij, and that's why they stood up considering what they considered to be sins, and they stood and they rebelled against the companions, radiallahu anhu, from the time of Uthman and Ali, radiallahu anhu, and others. We, we know those stories, and it's well known and documented in our history. When they appeared and they went to that extreme of saying that a single major sin, the one who commits it takes a person out of the fold of Islam, those people are disbelievers, you can fight them and kill them and so on. And that is still the belief today of those groups that kill other Muslims, that commit acts of terror and so on. It is still very much the aqeedah of the khawarij. Then to compensate or to combat that, they have another emergence of a group that went to the other extreme that said, no, 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 that's crazy. You commit one major sin, you're no longer Muslim? Okay, we'll tell you what actually, Actions don't have a bearing. It doesn't matter what you do. And so they try to combat one extreme by going to a different extreme. And always the path of Ahlul Sunnah is the one in the middle that is balanced. That we say, no, actually, it is your heart and your tongue and your actions. But also that your Iman increases and decreases. And when you bring all of those texts of the Quran and the Sunnah together, the ones that speak about Tawbah, but the ones that also speak about the punishment that certain people will have from this Ummah and the fire and the punishment of the grave and so on and so forth. When you bring all of this together, you find that that is actually the one that brings all of those texts together and reconciles them in a way in which there is no conflict. Because otherwise, any extreme in terms of Aqeedah especially will mean actually ignoring wholesales, wholesale, whole chunks of the Quran and the Sunnah. You just have to kind of ignore them or explain them away or twist their meaning or whatever it is that you have to do because otherwise it is uncomfortable because Islam, Allah made it complete and the Prophet didn't leave us with anything that we need to know except that he informed us of it. So now when you come to those narrations, you either have to give it a different explanation, give it a different slant or just kind of ignore it or just say, no, actually that's and take it out of context and isolate it. That's what these groups do. Because all of these groups will use verses and hadith, but they have to do this, otherwise it doesn't fit into their narrative. And so this is something which is extremely important to remember when it comes to the tafsir of the Qur'an. So that's why it's mentioned, and this is, I'm not the only one by the way mentioning this now, this is something that you will find in the books of tafsir. 
the scholars of tafsir mention this point in the in the tafsir of this particular verse because it's something which was prevalent in their time. And when you see the scholars of tafsir, a number of them, mentioning on a certain verse or in a certain verse this same point and it's repeated in a number of books of tafsir, they know that that is a methodology, it's a manhaj that they have because they saw that it was a problem that existed during their time and the time that came before them. And that is always the statement, the way of the scholars of the past. If you find that the scholars of the past, uh, if you find that the scholars of the past, you find that they had an issue that they saw was prevalent in their time, you will find a number of books appearing written by the scholars of that generation concerning that. Right? So for example, there was a time in Islam, at the very early time, the time of the likes of Imam Ahmad and before Muqim al-Jarrah and others, Abdullah ibn Mubarak and others, a number of them wrote books on zuhd. Right? Zuhd is abstinence from the world, not being attached to the dunya. Zuhd. A number of them wrote that. Why did they write so many books at that particular time? All of them are writing on this. Because they saw that people were coming and taking that concept and twisting and changing it to something else. So you have the emergence of tasawwuf. Those people who said that actually zuhud means A, B, C, and D. And it's not the zuhud that was mentioned, in the, or it's not the zuhud that was understood by the early Muslims. So when they saw that that's something which is becoming apparent, they wrote books. And when you see that emergence at a single time in Muslim history of scholars focusing on something, it's because that's an issue that is prevalent in the ummah. And therefore it needs to be something which is tackled and spoken about. And you have a number of examples of that anyway. That's not really the point here of our discussion. But it is important to note that when it's something which is mentioned in a number of books of tafsir, that this is an issue that people misunderstood. And because of that misunderstanding, they went and fell into major issues in terms of their belief or their theology or their practice or their worship. Then it's something which we should note also. And so, for example, Imam Al-Qurtubi and others from amongst the scholars of tafsir, they mentioned him. They mentioned this. Uh, in their tafsir and Ibn Qayyim also mentions this and he says that it is the same way that people misunderstood this verse and so Ibn Qayyim says that this is one of the levels of Jahannam one of the levels of Jahannam and so the one who enters into it and the one who will be immersed in it doesn't mean that no one else enters into it besides them, right? Either we say that it's one of the levels of Jahannam and so therefore this person will be entered, the worst, the wretched of people, that's reserved for them. But there are other people that will have others from amongst the depths and the different levels of Jahannam, of the hellfire. Or we say that this is the person that will be immersed in it, but it doesn't mean that other people will not be burnt in other ways or touched by the fire. And Allah Azza wa knows best. But the point of this being to understand this issue, right? to understand this issue that we mentioned of the issue of Aqeedah, that it's not a proof to say that actions are divorced from Iman, but Iman is belief of the heart and statement of the tongue, and actions of the limbs, they increase, Iman increases by good deeds, and it decreases by a person's evil deeds. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, in this verse, after mentioning the warning in the previous verse, فَأَنذَرْتُكُمْ نَارٌ I warn you of a punishment of the fire, a raging fire, Allah Azza then describes the type of person that will enter into the fire. And he says that it is ashqa. And Allah Azza is just giving an example of the extremes here. Because Allah Azza in a number of in a couple of verses will mention the opposite side, right? The one who will be saved from the fire. And Allah Azza will describe that person as being Al Atqa, the most pious. The most pious 
that clearly we don't understand therefore from that verse that only the most pious of people will enter into Jannah, the likes of the prophets or Abu Bakr and Umar radiallahu anhumah. But we know from the hadith of the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam that many of this ummah will enter into Jannah by Allah Azza's permission and every person who dies upon la ilaha illallah with that being sincerely in their heart will eventually enter into Jannah. And so Allah Azza is just giving examples here of if you like the two, uh, the two pinnacles of each side, the two extreme examples of each side, if, if that's a correct way of saying that. The person who is the worst, the most wretched, then the person who is the most righteous and the most pious. And so Allah Azza is mentioning both. That doesn't mean that it is exclusive to them, but it is by way of example, speaking about the types of people that Allah Azza is going to mention as well within uh, within the, within those people who will enter into those respective places. In verse number 16, then Allah Azza wa continues as a description of the people who are al-ashqa. Who is that person that is the worst, the most wretched, the most evil? Allah Azza wa describes that person and he says, الَّذِي كَذَّبَ وَتَوَلَّى الَّذِي كَذَّبَ وَتَوَلَّى He is the one who denied the truth. And he turned away. And that is the, the translation of Professor Abdul Halim, the translation of Muhsin Khan, who denies and turns away. And Mufti Taqi, who, who rejected the truth and turned away from it. And in Sahih International, who had denied and turned away. And very similar in terms of their translations. When we look at this verse, Allah is now describing this person. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes this person as the one who rejects. Right? Allah already mentioned the path of the people who will, who will take the path of hardship, the path of evil. Those people who are miserly, those people who withhold, those people who, who reject the promise of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Now Allah Azza mentions something very similar, and that is that these are the people who make who deny the truth and they turn away from it. And that is why it's mentioned in some of the narrations of, of Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu that he was asked uh, when he used to say, everyone will enter into Jannah except those who refuse. They would say, and who would refuse? And in some narrations, Abu Hurairah used to say from himself, he would recite this verse, The one who denies and turns away is from amongst those people who have refused. Right? And it's mentioned as the statement of Abu Hurairah and it's also mentioned as the statement of Al-Hasan al-Basri that they would say concerning those who refuse, they would recite this verse, verse number 16 of Surah Al-Layl, And Imam Al-Tabari he said that the one who rejects or the one who denies it means that they deny the verses of their Lord and the signs of their Lord and they turn away from it and they don't believe in it and Ibn Kathir he said something very similar he said the which is the denial part is the denial of the heart and the turning away is the turning away in terms of actions so this person denied and so therefore obviously they're not going to perform the actions that they have been obligated with or the actions that would have led them to piety. And that is a nice tafsir because it is a tafsir as Ibn Kathir often does by understanding the issue of aqidah here that is at play as we mentioned in the previous verse because we said that people misunderstood the meaning of iman and they divorced action from the, from the belief of the heart. When you divorce action from the belief of the heart, you fall into problems. So what did Ibn Kathir do? He essentially merged the two in his tafsir by saying that when Allah says denial, that is the denial of the heart. And the turning away, because the denial is something which is internal, something which takes place in the heart. Belief and disbelief is an action of the heart. 
It is something which takes place in the heart. But the turning away is a physical action. When a person turns away, they show you their back, they move away. That's a physical action. So he says, the denial is the denial of the heart. The turning away is the turning away of the actions of the limbs of the body. And Imam al-Baghawi, in his tafsir, he said that the one who denies meaning, they deny the Prophet And the one who turns away, meaning they turn away from Iman. Right? They turn away from Iman. But I think Ibn Kathir, his tafsir of this verse is a very nice tafsir. Uh, Sheikh Ibn Uthaymeen, rahimahullah ta'ala, he said in his tafsir that when it comes to denial, that is the opposite of doing good, the denial of doing good. So Allah Azza wa Jal, everything He commands us with, everything He tells us to do, there is goodness in it and righteousness. So when a person denies, they reject that goodness and they reject that righteousness. And the turning away, He says, is turning away from what Allah, command, what Allah commands and what Allah prohibits. And so the person who rejects the truth turns away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because if you don't have that acceptance in your heart, then you're not going to perform the commands of Allah azza wa or stay away from his prohibition. And so the Shaykh says that this is a person, for example, who rejects uh, resurrection. They don't believe in resurrection. You say, what's going to happen to you after you die? They say, I don't know, nothing's going to happen. Nothing's going to happen. We're just going to, uh, you know, we're just going, our bodies will just decompose. And that's it. It's the end of existence. Nothing will ever happen again. And so those people, because for them, they don't believe in that, then they have no, no reason for them to want to obey Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if you say to them, well, don't you believe that there's going to be another life, that there's going to be paradise, hellfire, uh, an accounting, a type of resurrection and judgment, they will say no. And so because a person does this, they continue to deny and deny and deny, and therefore they turn away from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in terms of that belief in Allah azza wa jal and, for, and, and, and uh, adhering to the commands of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And that is a tafsir, as I said, of Shaykh Ibn Uthaymeen, rahimahullahu ta'ala. And I think that that is a good place to stop uh, because now the next few verses will speak about the opposite group. So Allah Azza wa Jalla has spoken about those people who turn away and Allah Azza wa Jalla has warned us of the fire and warned us against being from the people of the fire and has given us from the descriptions of those people who are from the people of the fire, the most wretched of them and what they do. Now Allah Azza wa Jalla in the next few verses will speak about the opposite, the person that Allah Azza wa Jalla will save from the fire, will enter into Jannah, their description. And what Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes those people as being, and as we will mention inshallah ta'ala in our next lesson, that amongst the foremost from amongst them is the likes of the companions radiallahu anhum ajma'een and at the forefront of them Abu Bakr radiallahu an. And these last few verses now inshallah that are left of this surah that inshallah ta'ala we will speak about in the next lesson and inshallah hopefully finish off this surah in the next lesson. Then these are also verses that the majority of the scholars of tafsir, they often say that it's referring to Abu Bakr radiallahu an first and foremost. By way of example, they are referring to Abu Bakr radiallahu an and what he did at the beginning of Islam in terms of his spending and in terms of his freeing those slaves that he bought for the sake of Allah azawajal and the other actions that he did. But inshallah ta'ala, that will be for our next lesson. So inshallah ta'ala, we're going to end here today. Barakallahu feekum wa jazakumullah khairan. وصلى الله على نبينا محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين والسلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته